Welcome back to another episode of Extra Innings, a Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm Matt Breen, and I'm joined as always by Scott Lauber and Bob Rookover. And guys, we, we've been digging in the games the past month or so, and there's been a common theme about those games is that they've all been Phillies wins, right? That is correct. Right. And, and that is correct. Today, at Bob's pick, we, we picked a game that not only was a Phillies loss, but it's it's up there for one of the most crushing losses in Phillies history, if not the most. I know some losses in the last decade, you can probably make a case for it, but it's at least the biggest meltdown in Phillies history. And it's Black Friday. We, we went back to 1977 at the vet. And uh, it's a game that I've heard about for so long, but I've never sat down and watched it. My, my dad was there and, you know, I grew up hearing about Black Friday and, and it's kind of funny. It's almost two games in one. It's, it's the bird hooting game. And then it's Black Friday. But here, you know, it's yeah. both things in the same game. And it was just – I cannot imagine what it must have been like to be in that stadium as a Phillies fan and watch that game. Two outs, ninth inning, bases empty, up two runs, and out away from the win. And then whatever could possibly go wrong went wrong. Well, I think we should start right there. Like, the Phillies have lost more games than any franchise in North American pro sports history, right? And what was the worst loss in franchise history? I think people, I was a year old uh, when this game was played, uh, just a year old. Um, and my birthday was in late September, is in late September. And so I don't, I have no recollection of this game when it happened. For me, you know, I would go to the Joe Carter game. Uh, a lot of people who remember 93 well would go to the 15-14 game uh, two games earlier. Uh, and say that that was even worse than the Joe Carter game. But I think you could make a case that this was the worst loss in Philly's history, given given the situation, given how it happened, uh, given the stakes of the game, and and everything that surrounds it. I think it could be the one. I um, I was alive for this. I was a freshman in high school. My, I remember my my brother went to this game and snuck into it. <laughs> a great Philadelphia tradition. Well, it was, it was. My brother was a master at doing these types of things because he also snuck into game six of the 1980 World Series. Uh, so he he went to this game and I remember him coming back just so dejected. He was he was like a senior in high school. I think he cut class that day and went to this game. I had I had football practice, freshman football practice. Uh, so I couldn't go. I do remember that we won the next day, seventy to twelve over the more they hated Morristown High School. Seventy to t- Morristown. Oh no, say it ain't so. It was only a freshman game. How, how many snaps uh, did you we, play, Bob? But we won seventy to twelve. I played <laughs> pretty much all of them on offense. Was uh, um, did they go to did they go to running time in the fourth quarter? I covered some high school football like that. They did not go to running time oh, in the fourth no. quarter. No, we just destroyed them. We were that's torture. We were very good. We were six and zero before. Before the teachers went on strike and we had to forfeit our last three games, uh, but anyway, um, so I, I, this is the first time I, I've ever watched this game. Obviously, I knew a lot about it. Anybody who knows Philly's history knows a lot about it, and I lived it through my brother. I remember him telling me I've never heard a place as loud as it was when Bert Hooten was coming unglued in the second bottom of the second inning of that game. Uh, but this is the first time watching it, and you can just feel the pain and my first thought is think about if you were like 17 years old in 1964 and now it's 13 years later you're 30 years old 
and you lived through that, and now you're thinking, this is it. This is finally the time that they've arrived. And in a blink of an eye, it just all went away. And, you know, the players talk about after the game how they, they think they can still win. But it didn't seem like just reliving it and reading the clips and watching it to anybody in Philadelphia other than maybe if the, some of those players thought they had any chance after that game was over. Yeah, I mean, this team won 101 games. It's uh, I know I'm, I'm, I have a great book here, The Big 50, <laughs> by that Scott's new book that came out. And they, he talks about in this book that this is the greatest team in Philly's history when people look back. So, so you have the greatest team in Philly's history, one out away from winning this big game, taking a two-to-one series lead in a best-of-five series. And when Vic Daviolo is up, there's a nine, according to baseball reference, a 99% win probability for the Phillies. And it's just incredible that, that they did not win this it, game. It, it is stunning, and it, and it is the best team in Phillies history. And I don't – listen to this stat, okay? That team that year had a 794 OPS, right? And teams have since had a higher, but it, that was in 1977. It took until 1994 for a team to have a higher OPS than that. Uh, and now we're talking about we're in the steroids era. Um, you know, it was just there was so much firepower on that team. And you even look at the bench was just great. Davey Johnson was on that bench. He hit three. Everybody on that team hit 300. It had a terrific bullpen. It, it was such a good team. And that's why so people were so devastated because they knew that team was so good. Yeah. You know, you talk to the guys from the second great era in franchise history, the Jimmy Rollins is and the Ryan Howards. And, and you hear a lot of like, we should have won more than one, you know, like, and, and not just 08 and 09 either that 10 and 11 were great teams and teams that fell short. You hear a lot of that from this era, that this first great Phillies era, about 77. Like, 1980 was the year that they won it, that they finally got over the top. But to a man, uh, guys I've talked to think that 77 was the best team out of that, out of that six or whatever, seven-year period. And, and it was for all those reasons. The bench was unbelievable. The bullpen was incredible. I mean, the idea that Gene Garber uh, stays in this game to close it out. And I thought to myself, where's Tug McGraw? He hadn't pitched since game one, but that's not how that bullpen was set up. That bullpen was so good that Garber and Reed and Brewster, they were getting saves the same way as Tug was that year. Uh, it was such a deep and, and talented group of group of guys, one through 25 uh, that, you know, as you mentioned, they won 101 games. They, um, you know, had the best home record, uh, in the league, they uh, had the second best run differential in the league. Um, th- they were heavily favored, I think, in this series. And, you know, they got they won game one. They got blown out in game two at Dodger Stadium. And then this and they're one out away from Steve Carlton on the mound to close it out in game four. That's why I say, like, of all the losses in Philly's history, regular season, postseason, it's got to rank number one, I think, because of where they were at and just what might have happened. You know, we're doing this what if series, um, you know, in, in the Inquirer. And, you know, what if Luzinski makes that catch? Or what if, um, you know, what if uh, uh, Fremming doesn't uh, makes, makes the opposite call? I was going to say blow the call, but we can get to that later. I think it was a, almost a coin flip on that, on that call. 
what if he calls him out, lopes out, you know, and they win that game, they win the series, and who knows, maybe they go on and wind up beating the Yankees in the World Series. There are just so many what-ifs with, with, that was that great. So let's break down the, the, uh, what happened with two outs, bases empty. For those that don't know, Dodgers get on with a bunt single, even a beautiful bunt, but okay, that's a man on first, no big deal, right? And then what happens next? Man on first. Well, it was, it was Vic Davalillo was 40 years old also. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, I know like, all right, he, you know, the Dodgers talk about having a good bench. I mean, he was a good bench player. Manny Moda, maybe the best pinch hitter of all time, possibly. Who was 39 at the time. And, and had, <laughs> and had and played into his forties too. He, he hit 300 that year. He was a 300 career. 395, not 300, 395. He was a 300 career pinch hitter. Think about that. Um, you know, these days, if you hit, if you hit 200 as a pinch hitter, you're doing, you're doing really well. This guy batted 300 for his career as a pinch hitter. You're one strike away. But anyway, um, they had a great bench. Davalillo, though, 40 years old, drag bunt for a hit. Talk about being completely and totally desperate just to get anything going. And that's how this all starts. Before you go on, I'll, I'll let you continue, but it, it, it wasn't just a great bunt. It was an artistic bunt. Yeah. If you look at how he maneuvers his bat, I mean, he just, Gives it a little flip at the end. It's a lost. It's a lost art. It's an art that doesn't even exist in the game anymore. It's true. It really was so good. Go ahead. I'll c- continue. Go for it, Matt. Oh, I thought you were going to keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> no, no, no. So he he, Vic Davalillo bunts. Uh, Manny Mota hits the double to left field, and and it's not just a double to left field. It's a double that. And I and the retelling is that it was like a routine fly ball. But I think it would have been a nice play if it if it was caught. Am I wrong to, to think that watching the replay? The it, it was it was it was not an easy play, but I still buy the argument that G, that Jerry Martin should have been in left field instead of Greg Lozinski. Of course, night. yeah. But even in the, I think, in but, an article, but, but it wasn't an easy play. By any I think means. that's the sin here is that Jerry Martin wasn't the wasn't out there. This is this is uh, Bill Buckner being left out there to play first base in in '86 when. They could have gone, um, you know, they could have gone to the bench, which is what they had done all year. This is, you know, this is right there with that. Um, in fact, Ozark had, um, throughout the season, had been going to Jerry Martin as, as the defensive replacement in left field late. And he was asked after the game, Ozark was, why, um, why, he, why he didn't do that. And um, he, he essentially says it's because Luzinski was due up in the bottom of the ninth and he didn't want to lose his bat, which was the wrong answer because that's the manager signaling he was more worried about losing the lead than he was about protecting it. Um, you know, I asked uh, some people about it for the book, and, you know, Boa said flat out, you know, Bull shouldn't have been out there. He'll be the first to tell you that. Jerry Martin catches that ball in his back pocket. So I don't think it was an easy play, but I think it would have been far easier for Jerry Martin, and I think that that was really the sin there. So the Phillies are still up up a run. They still only need one out. And Gene Garber is pitching his third inning, but he's not getting hit around. All, you know, the, yeah. It, seven, it was, had been eight straight ground balls. Can we just say, how did anybody hit Gene Garber? Yeah. I mean, that was, That's, that that was, was pretty funky. It was funky. That was good stuff. That was Louis Tiant from down low, from the side. Like, I don't know how – I mean, and they had some great camera angles from behind the plate, like from the hitter's view. I don't know how anybody hit Gene Garber ever. I mean, that was nasty. They actually nasty, did have nasty. good what's, camera what, for 1977. Gene, what, they did. What's, what's Gene Garber's um, 
biggest claim to fame in baseball history. He broke Pete Rose's hit streak. And what did Pete Rose say? He afterwards? said he jumped off the mound like he won the World Series. That's you know it. why I know that? Not, I, I, I can't beat you. No, these I, trivia I questions. used a lifeline. I called my dad after I got done watching it, and I just was like t- talking to him about the game, and he brought that up. And I, I had heard that before from him, but if I didn't talk to him yesterday, I would not have. That would not have been fresh on my mind. So I'll, I'll admit that I kind of cheated. <laughs> All so right. we'll we keep it. going. Um, so now, Dave, now this is this is the the play. This is the epic play of the game. Davy Lopes, sharp ground ball to third, off that awful vet Asher turf, bounces off Mike Schmidt's glove and somehow lands perfectly to into Larry Bow's hand. Throws it to first. It's like I, Scott in your book you wrote that it would have been a you know, a play that's talked about forever if the call is the other way. And they showed that replay four times, and I, I don't know if safer out. And I mean, okay, so so Harry's call was great. So Harry goes, yes, no, not in time. And then they show the replay, and he says, I don't know, I don't know. You call it. It looked like a tie, yeah. and if it's a tie, it goes to the runner. Now, there was an amazing call at, by Harry Kellis. It was. It was a terrific call. It kind of shows the just how up in the air it was. Like I said, kind of a coin flip. I thought. I mean, my my eye uh, on the replay was that he was he was out by maybe half a step. But I don't know. I mean, again, I don't think the video was 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 all that awesome in this rewatch. <laughs> I mean, I, I you know I think you know I think the video is a little little spotty, but. At any rate, I, I thought he looked out. Certainly, you talk to Phillies players today, even now, all these years later, they swear that Lopes was out. Swear. I mean, Luzinski said to me, this was six months ago, Fremming gave them the game. I mean, this is, you know, how many years later, and he's saying Fremming gave them the game, and look, just look at it. And you'd think it was obvious, but it wasn't obvious. It was, it was very, very close. Well, my, my some of my favorite quotes are from Davy Lopes after the game. He he said it was pow pow. I'm glad he called Salt as my pow coming first. Wow, <laughs> um, which is just a great quote. And he also says you can't they can't blame the umpire for this game. They can't blame the umpire for this game. And there's a lot of truth to that too, um, because you, we'll go back to the Bert Hooten thing in the first inning. We're um, right at, at some point, but, um, but you know, so it, it's a co- it's it's the replays are not great. That's that's one thing. You only get the one angle that I saw. Is that correct? Yeah, just that right yes. on first base. That 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 right on first base angle. They don't know, have the camera in, in the dirt in, like they in do today's now. game. We would have seen it from six different angles, and we would know for sure. No, no pylon um, cam. Right, we we would know for sure in today's game whether it was out or safe. The, the thing that always comes to mind in my to me when I see replays, like so that was 1977. It's almost 40 years later before we finally get replay into <laughs> baseball, which is just absurd to me. Um, but that that always comes into my mind. But at that point, if that's the best replay you had, it would have been hard to. It would have been hard to – not hard. I think it would have been impossible to say so, – to overturn it. I, there's no answering this question the right, you know, in any way, shape, or form. But the, the question I have is, if we had had replay in 1977, he's called safe on the field. They go to replay. They look at it. Is there enough evidence to overturn that call? 
Like w- w- with replay, would we have seen an overturn of that call? No, that's I don't. I don't think so. Well, either. it depends. If we had the front angle, we might have. If you can clearly see the ball hits the glove before his foot hits the base, right? Yeah, but but from that, from the only angle they showed, no. I, and I don't know if the if the NBC telecast had better replays of it or not. I, I, I don't know. Now the contention that I think the, it was exclusively on lo- was it on local broadcast only or was it double. Was this I, a double? There was NBC. I think it was on NBC because there were NBC banners in the ball. Yeah, I okay. saw NBC. Because I know the next game was on NBC Saturday night. Right. right. Um, the, the contention that the Phillies make, even now, all these years later, is that, uh, you know, Lopes, was a, Lopes had a lot of speed, obviously. We know that. Uh, he was, you know, the, the play, you know, the ball goes off Schmidt. Um, ricochets perfectly to Boa, as you said, Matt. And that Fremming had made up his mind ahead of time because of who the runner was and how fluky that play was, that Lopes was going to be safe. And so his instinct was to call him safe. And, you know, Luzinski said to me, like, when have you ever seen the first baseman, Richie Hebner, when have you ever seen a first baseman drop kick his hat <laughs> in objection to a call the great and, reaction. Not, and not get ejected from the game? And to the Phillies, that was a sign that Fremming knew he'd screwed it up, that he was going to let, Hebner go crazy and Ozark argue the call and that neither of them were going to get tossed and that the game was going to continue. And that was Fremming's way of saying, my bad, I screwed up, have your say and let's move on that, that even in the moment Fremming knew and who knows, I I don't, I don't know that that was the case, but they, they were saying he had predetermined based on the ball ricocheting off of Schmidt that, and Lopes being the runner, that there was no way that Lopes was going to get thrown out. And if he was called out, that's one of the all-time great plays ever by Larry Boa. I mean, it was <laughs> perfect ricochet, but a great throw, and he got rid of it as fast as he could, and he had to to make it that close. So, um, you know, that was at least the way the Phillies saw it. That's the uh, that would be the Chase Utley play of that generation. It would be. Yep, no doubt. So the Philly, now the game's tied. A three a two-run lead is now a five-five game. Still two outs, obviously. And then Bill Russell hits a single right up the middle under Gene Garber's glove, which I didn't know that it was a uh, like I didn't know about this play either until I read I read your book, Scott. Before I read your book and then I watched the game, and yeah, realized how close of you know it goes right under his glove. Yeah, and you know Garber, it's interesting. I, Garber was on so Luzinski and Dan Baker do do a radio show um, every week during the season and. While I was working on this book, they had Garber on, as luck would have it. And, uh, you know, I listened, I listened to the interview and, you know, Garber still beats himself up over the fact that he thinks he should have had that. It went right through his legs. And, um, you know, Luzinski said to me, he goes, yeah, Garber brought that up in their interview. And he says he didn't remember that that's how the play went. And he said he told him, look, you're off the hook, man. <laughs> you know, all these years <laughs> later, you're off the hook. Like of all the things that happened in that inning. Uh, the Russell ball going through Garber's legs was, what, third or fourth on the list of things that went wrong. So, um, But Garber thinks he should have had that, and if he does and he makes that play, uh, it goes to the bottom of the ninth tied 5-5 instead of down 6-5. I, I don't know what the numbers were at that time, Gene Garber versus Bill Russell, uh, and obviously you got a right right there. But at that point um, – <laughs> I think Danny Ozark was, was just completely lost in the moment at that point. But at that point, I might have brought in Tug McGraw just to 
slow things down and settle things because so much crazy stuff had happened. Yeah. Uh, after Lopes gets the hit uh, to, uh, to to tie the game, I think I would have brought in Tug McGraw. I know I would have brought it didn't end up hurting him, but he left Gene Garber in to face Reggie Smith, who was arguably the best hitter in the game at that time, certainly one of the top five hitters in the game. He, the Phillies get out of that inning, but it's like at that point, you know, there were some things there in that inning where Danny O should have made some different decisions. It's almost well, like he tapped just, out. He was just like, yeah, you know. I think he was just so emotionally distraught. Yeah, he didn't know what to do. Which there, there's a there's a quote from him after the game that pretty much tells you he was emotionally distraught. Uh, he didn't go to the press conference uh, room. Or that, that was the next he night, did, I'm sorry. He, he, he did. He did. He did the next go to night he didn't go. He said, I'm sick of going over Look, there as a loser. Right, and he he, but yeah, after game four, but he after that game, you know, Tommy Lasorda was always big, you know, God's a big Dodgers fan, the big blue guy in the sky, and all that. <laughs> and Danny Ozark sheepishly says, "I go to church yeah. too." <laughs> That's a great quote. I mean, just, just a great, great quote. I mean, is there a manager? You know, you talk about how different the game is now from when it, from from then. Um, is there a manager alive today? As well as Garber pitched in the seventh and eighth innings, who lets Garber come out for the ninth? I mean, now no manager has the guts to do that. They go to their closer. It's almost a reflex. Um, I think even Gabe Kapler would go to his closer at that point. Um, Tug would have been in that game if it was played today. Yeah, but he, Tug, Tug wasn't really their closer. Like, as you pointed out earlier, he wasn't really their closer. Garber led the team that year with 19 saves. He did, yeah. And, and Reed was second with 15, and Tug was third with nine. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Tug, Tug missed some time that year, um, but you know, <laughs> you look at their innings. At one point, you know, the, the, the stat was a little off, but it said, "Yeah, Gene Garber's not a bad hitter. He's zero for ten this year." Could you imagine a relief pitcher getting ten at bats in his season? Well, that <laughs> right, and that too. I mean, and he was actually zero for seven, but even seven is a crazy number. That too, Garber bats for himself in the bottom of the eighth, like he has an opportunity to pinch hit for him there and bring Tug oh, no, in. I guess, to the game, yeah. and it's it's only five three. I mean, I, I get it that that they're up a couple of runs, and the way Garber was pitching, they feel great about that. But you have an opportunity to 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 maybe tack on possibly if, and they had such a great bench. Um, yeah. So the second that, guess that's is, a decision you can second guess for sure. Yeah, it starts there, and I, I don't I don't know that there's a manager today bold enough to not go with with you know with a with a different let's just say a different guy or or, or you know. Even if you were fortunate enough to have three guys or four guys capable of closing out a game, you'd go to a different one. I just think, you know, that's what managers do now. It's the safe play. That that year, the Phillies used thirteen pitchers that entire season, and really just eleven because two of them, two of them combined for two guys. I Dan Warthin, I remember. I don't remember Manny. Manny, I can't. I can't even see Kane. I can't even pronounce his last name. I have no recollection of him whatsoever, and I was alive. But he pitched in two games, and Wartham pitched in, in five. So they essentially used um, used eleven pitchers the entire season. <laughs> so, the, so the Phillies insane. lose this game. They go quietly in the ninth inning, and then the, the next night two they... outs, two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Lazinski gets hit by a pitch, and that's when Jerry Martin comes in the game to run for him. You know, you just wanted to be like, oh, yeah. now, now you go to Jerry Martin. That's a little late, a little late for that. And yes. this game ends, the series ends the next night. 
in, in the rain with Tommy John against well, Steve Carlton. It's it's funny because the, inqu- the inquirer on black covering the Black Friday gives the forecast has like a box about what what fans can do because it's really going to rain hard the next day. It's going to be miserable the next day. Oh. If you weren't miserable, so no. so they they lose this series two back to back painful losses, and then we talked about 1980. But imagine that they lose Game Five in '80. And in, in the, they get lose game five, the NLCS. They don't win the World Series that year. 83 happens. 93 happens. Now, you know, the Phillies have been around since 1883. They don't, they don't have a World Series in this what-if uh, scenario. They're the Cubs. Exactly. They're the Cubs. I'm, I'm watching this game last night, and I'm well, thinking – It still wouldn't have been as charming to Ken Burns. Yeah, but, but when, when did – That they had gone that long without like, winning when did the Series. Cu- like the Cubs were the lovable losers, but when did they really become, like, the cursed team? Like, I know, you know what I mean? If the Phillies don't win an 80 are they the cursed team by the time you get to 2008? I would, I would say that I would say the Cubs became that around 1969 when they blew their, blew the division to the Mets. Yeah. Whenever the legend Um, of the Billy goat became a thing, you know, and that was what they last become so popular. 69 was the trigger point, the trigger point of it. Uh, it, it, it grew as the, Cubs failed to win in 84 and 89 after winning division titles. Uh, the Billy Goat thing grew. Um, you know, the Red Sox, I would say they're, they started to become the lovable losers after 86, probably yeah. more than even 75. So, yeah, that's, but the Phillies were, ne- the Phillies were never the lovable losers. They were just, they were just the team that stinks. The actual losers. As, as Joe Graziola says in the, that, the, that's I forget what the name of it was. That's baseball. Oh no, what was called baseball? I don't know. It was kind of like a documentary thing, and there was a sign for Life Boy on the yeah, outfield wall the saying, saying right. the, Philly, the, the Phillies use Life Boy, and they uh-huh. still stink. <laughs> 63,719 was the attendance at the game, which I thought was I mean, I, I can't relate to that now. Like, how can you have a crowd that large? At a baseball game, they said it was the second largest crowd after the All Star game in '76. So I looked it up, and with as bad as the weather was, and as horrible as people felt after Game Three, they got a larger crowd for Game Four. Yeah, Game Four, Yep. No, there was an ad just because you mentioned the attendance. There, they were talking about standing room only tickets. Where, where was standing room only at the vet? You could stand in the aisles. Um, but that's I, know. I was a kid. There was no standing room tickets for the vet. I know that because in 1980, 81 Eagle season, when they went to the Super Bowl, I bought it. Went to went to the vet, standing outside, bought a fifteen dollar ticket um, for standing room only, and like stood in the aisles the whole game and moved all around to watch the Eagles beat the Cowboys. So there, you 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 could find places to stand and watch games. Uh, uh, that sounds safe. That's amazing. So you just, you stood in like, say the the aisle of section seven hundred four or something. Yep. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's where, and it was definitely wow. seven hundred level. They wouldn't let you sit anywhere else. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're, before we go any further, I just wanted to one one of the amazing things about this game to me were the clips. I mean, and and just how different a time it was. Um. Tug McGraw, well, Steve Yeager talking about the first inning. We'll go go back. Well, you know, I'll, I'll end with the Steve Yeager quote because that'll take us into the Bert Hooten thing. Um, there was 
the Daily News had a Tug McGraw column. I don't know if you guys saw that. I read that. And it was... I read that, yeah. Really good, I thought. I mean, it was like an outpouring of his emotions that day. Um, and the inquiry had Deep had Throat, deep throat. At the playoffs. <laughs> uh, did you read Deep Throat? I read Deep Throat after game four. I didn't read him after game three. Uh, I didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, at the end of Deep Throat's column, he says, I've got a confession to make. I played a little trick on Larry Bow yesterday. When that girl reporter tried to get in the dressing room at practice Tuesday, there were a lot of comments, mostly kidding. I quote Boa saying something about women ought to be kept pregnant and in the home. He didn't really say that, but just think of all the hate mail he's going to get from irate women. He, he, he. Oh, my God. Could you imagine something like that going in a 2020 newspaper? Bizarre. No, no, never. No. <laughs> like, how did that even get in the paper then? Uh, I, I, because it was just a different time. I mean, if you go back and watch All in the Family, the references that are made in a show, TV show like that, they, they couldn't get yeah. through today. They wouldn't get through today. Um, and it's just, it is just such a different time. It's amazing how much the world has changed. Um, the, uh, the the one other thing I wanted to talk about in, in the clips. Um, was somebody did something the fan what 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 happened was just awful so they went into a bar and and were you know just kind of you know it's it's done today or monitoring a bar but this the bartender kind of um kind of sums it up by he says the first thing i know the phillies had lost i didn't even see it i just felt it i didn't get to see it i was too busy i just listened to the oohs and the ahs but when it happened it was like a vacuum I mean, nobody stayed two minutes and they were gone. And this is Friday night. Nobody's here. <laughs> and that was just a pretty, pretty much sum up of what that day was like. And I'll give you this Steve Yeager quote to take us into the, into the Burt Hooten part of this game. Uh, Yeager quoted after the game saying, the noise was so loud that not only couldn't I hear the ball hitting my mitt, I couldn't even feel it. Now he can talk about, uh, that wow a word on steve yeager so i knew i knew about here's what i knew about steve yeager aside from that he was a dodgers catcher in the 70s and 80s was that he was the third base coach in major league the one who flashes the sign to jake taylor to put the bunt down that's steve yeager so i googled him to see what else i could find out and according to his wikipedia page so take this for what it's worth that steve yeager also co-owns the jersey mics he posed for playboy and he's the cousin of Chuck Yeager, the famous test pilot who broke the speed of sound. So I've decided that Steve Yeager, not the Dos Equis guy, is the most interesting man. <laughs> he was a ever. pretty good catcher, too. He really was a pretty good catcher. Yeah, he was. So we, we talk about the umpire blowing the call in the ninth inning. Or, you know, I don't know if blowing the call is the right way, but whatever. And, and we, we go to the second inning. This is Bert Hoot. And, again, it's the thing I had heard about, how loud the crowd was. And they were chanting Hoot. They're hooting him off the mound, and and it it all that the stories match up to the video. It's just an amazing, um, just reaction from the crowd. But Hooten brings it on himself. He loses his cool after that first called strip with the bases loaded, the first miss <laughs> miss strike three, and the way he walks off the mound. Of course, the you know he like circles the mound, takes forever. He, of course, he's not going to get a call after that. The umpire, Hunter Wendelstadt, is probably like, 
Harry, screw Harry, you, buddy. Harry, I'm not giving you anything. Close. son. Harry, is that was that his his dad? Yeah, Harry Rundlestad ran yeah, umpire yeah. school in in Florida for a long time, and Hunter Hunter was his son. Yes, Hunter. It's Hunter still an umpire. Um, that's right. Of course, and he couldn't. So yeah. of course he's pinching him. But it's like Bert Hooten, you're going to get pinched when you walk off the mound and act like that. I think I, I'm. I think I'm. I'm on sh- on firm ground to say that between the three of us, we've seen a lot of baseball. Have you ever seen a pitcher meltdown no. like that? I mean, that was just that was a meltdown for the ages. He and it went. It started, I guess, with the um, with the walk to Christensen. I guess is when it started that he really began to lose his mind, and it goes through. I mean, the McBride at bat, the Boa at bat. I mean, he's totally. Every pitch, he is totally melting down. At one point, they have this great close-up of him, and he says, what's your strike zone? <laughs> he is absolutely losing it, and I've never, ever – like, you've seen, you've seen a pitcher, like, he'll look in or, like, he'll glare in or, you know, maybe they say something. But, like, one pitch, and it's over. They regroup, and they get back together, and they, they – he just completely – completely melts down i've never the, seen the only thing like i've that. ever seen close was one night one day in atlanta i forget what year it was scott ruffcorn was pitching for the phillies terry francona was the manager and it, it, it the circumstances not nearly as big or you know anything close to that but but scott ruffcorn was taken out of a game in the fifth inning while pitching a no hitter because he walked like eight guys and he couldn't draw a strike anymore and and to his credit he said after the game it didn't feel like I was pitching a no hitter, <laughs> so, which, which he, he sure didn't. <laughs> he left the base. I've never heard of Scott Ruffcorn. He, he never heard of Scott Ruffcorn. Really, uh, look look him up and look look up on the historical newspapers that game. I don't know, remember exactly exactly when it was, but you know it it was it was an incredible meltdown, and that place was so so loud. And in fairness to him, my favorite part of the whole sequence, though, is when they go to commercial after the pitching change and they got. Yes. I don't know how. I don't know if that was actually the telecast. I don't know why they had a hot mic. But the telecast was still going and Harry and Harry and Whitey are sympathizing with Tommy Lasorda and, and, you know, mocking Harry Wendelstead. Harry Wendell yeah, said, because, he says, you know, this should, this should game, be a And he was right because game. the calls in the first inning of the game, he also, Harry missed, he clearly missed that one where, you know, uh, who was it? Yes. Right. Uh, the play the Garvey plate. doesn't ever touch the plate. Uh, although today, again, we go back to it's a different game. They couldn't block a plate, but Boone did an incredible job of blocking the plate there. Um, the But, you know, that was just hilarious when, when they did that. Um when they went to, the, to that and reminded me, I, I was wondering if that was the actual telecast. I have no idea if it was or not. I have no clue. And, and I wonder why. So that's the only time I think it's the only time we, we get that we get yes. a hot mic between yeah. innings. Like they, so they, they, um, they're, you know, for people who did, who, who haven't watched this, that you don't see commercials. So they basically like uh, it jumps from the final out to the first batter of the next inning. But for whatever reason, after the after you know during that pitching change, we get a we get a hot mic and we get Harry and Whitey, and they are just leveling Harry Wendelstad. And I don't blame Lasorda. This should be a zero zero game. It, it, it oh, reminded it me great. of in '93 
the, the Phillies, uh, this is a hot, one of the great hot mic incidents. The Phillies lose this game to Expos. They're clo- kind, the Expos are kind of closing late in the season. They, I think they finished the sweep off it up in Olympic Stadium. Um, Mitch Williams blows the last game. And Whitey doesn't realize that they're still on air. And you can hear him saying, let's get the bleep out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so. It makes me think it makes me think that the hot mic was there the whole time and that whoever edited the, the, the film and cut the and cut the between innings left that in because is this it was one so of your hilarious. YouTube guys games. Uh, this is, this it, is. It, so maybe 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 that. So that's probably oh, what, he could, you're right. That's probably what happened. He probably cuts because he also you also go to the the bottom of the eighth when the Phillies score to take the lead. And you miss the first couple batters of of that inning, right? Uh, as as well. This is Mike Rogers, right? The Hebner the Hebner double and the Maddox single. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's yeah. Maybe they thought they were going to commercial and they they really weren't going to commercial. Yeah, I'd love it, to know it, the it was to very that. Funny. Like if that came over and how the air. The way Tommy was sort of. I, th- I think it might have been either this mound visit or the mound visit before, where you know he's just baiting the umpire to come out to the mound so he can give him an earful. Yes. Yep. I, I I thought that too. That that was a that was a that was a uh, a purposeful mound visit. Also, why Lasorda went out to the mound and not the pitching coach? Obviously, Lasorda wanted. Because he didn't change, did he no, change pitchers on that trip? I think that was just a trip? bird hooting mound visit. And you're right, because he just wanted to yell. Yeah, the so that was. Yep, exactly. And he waited until Wendelstadt had to come out to break up the mound visit uh, to give him a piece of his mind. That was a very that was a Lasorda purposeful mound and just visit. How different this game in his remember in his very <laughs> fast. This is funny because um, in the midst of just looking up stuff as I was going through the game. I, I found a story about how badly Tommy Lasorda wants Harry Wendelstadt to be inducted into the Hall of Fame was from like 2012. <laughs> so that was hilarious. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe not wow. that day. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that day. So it just this whole day would be remembered so differently if you know if they don't blow in the ninth inning. And, and Scott, in your book, when you when you talk to guys, do you is the pain still there from this game, or did eighty wash away the pain? I think 80 washed away a lot of it. Um, you know, I mean, there's pain in the sense that um, Boone and, and Boa and Luzinski and a lot of them feel like that 77 team was the best team out of the bunch. And because they didn't win, they largely are either forgotten or they're remembered for this game. So there's pain in that sense. And I guess there's some regret that, you know, the way that, the way that like I said, the way the 08 team feels that they should have more than one ring that 80 team feels like they should have more than one ring and that 77 should have been the year. But I do think that winning it uh, three years later, um, you know, you also think about how does Philly's history change if they win this game? Does, does Danny Ozark end up getting fired? Uh, Do they bring in Pete Rose? You know, how much different does the 1980 team look if they beat the Dodgers and maybe win the world series in 77? Do they just ride with that group or do they make the changes that they wound up making? So you know, I think that there's a little bit of that, um, you know, too. Like, does 1980 even happen if they win it in 77? Maybe 77 is the year that we all romanticize about and everything else is, is you know, it never happens the way it did. So I think 1980 cushioned it a little bit. But I, I do think a lot of them feel like what, what would have happened if uh, they had fulfilled what the, they thought the they could do. The other funny thing about the, the whole thing is 
Um, so if you go back and read the clips from the papers that day, the Royals had beaten the Yankees in Kansas City and had two games left in Kansas City to, to go up two to one yeah. in that series. Um, so, so, so somewhere they're doing a podcast in Kansas City right now, lamenting the 1977 season because they, <laughs> as we know, they blew that lead and that became the the World Series of all time with Reggie Jackson becoming Mister October. So, how how quickly history changed in, in those couple days. Yeah, it could have been a it could have been a Phillies uh, Royals World Series three <laughs> years right. earlier. And how loud the crowd was! This is the one thing I wanted to mention during the Burt Hoot inning, and then and then how loud they are chanting Gino when Gene Garver's on the mound. How quiet they are when Steve Garvey fields that grounder. But not only does he step on first, he stomps on first base, and then it just you you, know, you could hear a pin drop with this record crowd yes. like that just totally quiet. Uh, does you know it like yeah I thought that was an emphatic unnecessary stomp on the base and I you know if I'm if I'm Steve Carlton I would have hit Garvey first at bat yeah. in game four I mean I know I know you got to do what you got to do and you got to win the game but um, you know uh, or at least you got to brush him back you know because that was kind of like the dirt in the eye you know mud in the eye you know to stomp on the base like that um, so. Yeah, that just kind of added to you it. Know, on the other hand, if it was me, I might have stomped the bag like that too. Because if you're the Dodgers, how relieved are you to get out of that day with a win? <laughs> oh, yeah. No doubt. Scott, so we, we have the big 50 so, now. I was in my mailbox this weekend. How's it feel to, you know, all the work you put into it to actually have a, a book out and, and for sale and something in your hands that's tangible? Oh, if, I mean, I'm proud of it. You know, like I, uh, I, I've, I think I did 40 or 45 interviews for it. And I, I, I wish I had done a hundred or 150 interviews for it because I've got a list of people that I uh, just ran out of time and um, you know, but uh, I'm happy with it. it. You know, I tried to tell some stories that were new to me and hopefully new to new to fans. I mean, when you're writing about a lot of these people, you're not going to break a whole lot of new ground. You know, Mike Schmidt's written books of his own and uh you know, it's very difficult to find new things to say about a lot of these people and a lot of these moments. But, um, you know, where I could tell a story or from or a story from a different perspective, um, that was that was the fun part. Those were the fun chapters to do. And so I had a lot it's of fun. fun it's, with fun, it. it's fun the way I'm, you package it, too. I mean, you, even if things have been written about the package them in a different way uh, so people can look through them. It, it's, it's one of those books that you know is great because you you don't have to read it from start to finish, you can say, all right, you know what, this interests me right now. I want to read that. So that's, that's really cool. I think I haven't got to every chapter yet. I've read a few. I should have, I didn't even think to read the 77, the Black Friday chapter. I, I read a couple <laughs> of the others, but it's really cool uh, that you can do it. You can read the book that way. That, that's what I always like. Thanks. About yeah. I mean, you know, too. yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where like, you know, I, you know, I could have, I could have had a, I could have had a long conversation with Mike Schmidt and tried to write the definitive Mike Schmidt chapter, but uh, I wasn't going to do that. There's no way. So like in, in researching him, like the fun stuff was to find like, Oh, 1985, Mike Schmidt played first base. Well, who played third Rick shoe? Where's Rick shoe. He's the giants assistant hitting coach last year, you know? So let me go talk to him about what it was like, not only to replace Mike Schmidt, but to do it while Mike Schmidt was still on the team. And it turns out he had some funny stories. So that was, where I got the most enjoyment out of doing it. And, um, you know, like I said, hopefully people will, will find that we'll, we'll learn a little something or just find some of the stories. You have 50 enjoyable. chapters. It's 50, you know, some of them are just on a player like Chase Utley or Jim Bunning. Some of them are on 
moments like Black Friday. And I just saw one about the 1980 NLCS game that we talked about on the podcast. Of the 50, is like, what's your favorite? What was the one that you enjoyed the most or that you're most proud of? Um, you know, I, I like, I had a good time talking to, uh, so I, I found Chuck Klein's uh, nephew who actually knew Chuck Klein uh, when Chuck was late in life. Well, Chuck Klein died a young man, relatively speaking, but when he was later in his life, uh, Chuck Klein's nephew was a kid. He was, I think, seven years old. And so that was a fun one to write, um, you know, and stuff like that. It was, it was those where, where I could find something that was different. I had a fun time talking to Pat Gillick about a lot of things. Uh, he tells a great story about trying to make a deal once with Paul Owens. And uh, I was able to combine Gillick and the Pope into kind of a chapter of their own since they're the two Phillies GMs that won World Series. And to kind of hear about how Pope tried to make deals that were, that were like five-for-one deals uh, just in order to get the best player in return, um, you know, that, that was funny. So it was stuff like that. It was the ones where, like, I could find something that wasn't so obvious. I had a good time talking to a guy named Chris Welch, who's a Cincinnati Reds broadcaster and a former big league pitcher who pitched in college for one year with Robin Roberts as his pitching coach and what that was like to learn from a hall of famer who had, you know, you know, he'd get out in the bullpen and, and he'd do something and Roberts would go, no, 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 you just got to do this and this and this. And he'd go, I can't do that. Cause I'm not you, you know, I'm not great. And, um, so those were the fun ones. Those were the ones. The I Robin Roberts the one and the Chuck Klein one were ones when I read them, I remember you had told me like, you know, a year ago or so yeah. that, that you, you had, like that you were just done reporting or something. And I remember then being like, wow, that sounds interesting. And I, but I, you know, I forgot and I'm, I'm looking at the book. I'm like, Oh wow, that is that story. And wow, it is, you know, really interesting. The stuff that you found out about those two guys. You know, like I didn't know, for instance, that Chris Wheeler, um, you know, his first game in the broadcast booth. And we, we were just talking about this with him at spring mm-hmm. training, Matt, a few weeks ago, that it was the second game of the double header <laughs> and Whitey didn't feel like calling the game. Whitey was they, – they clinched the, the, the NL East in game one, and they were in Montreal, and Whitey didn't want to do the game. So he handed off his headset to Wheels, and that was Wheels' first game in the booth. And, and who knows what, what happens if that, if that never happens. Maybe he gets a chance, and maybe he I doesn't. Hate, I hate um, to interrupt the, 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 the fine plugging of Scott Lauber's outstanding book. <laughs> bringing up Whitey just reminded me of something about this, this Black Friday game. He disappeared after the Phillies blew that lead. And you never hear from him again. Now, was he not – was that by design? Was Harry supposed to just do the ninth inning alone? I, because it, the, the broadcasting setup is so, so confusing because Whitey does, like, the seventh inning by himself, like, with no play-by-play man. And then the ninth – but but right. I, I don't think Whitey was – this is my recollection. Maybe he's in the clubhouse. Days getting that's ready what for I post thought. game that, interviews if they win the game that, that's possible but 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 don't you have to come back remember in the ninth? The... i mean i remember the vet elevator could break down every once in a while it wasn't very good but but once they blow the yeah, lead, i thought to be back up there well you remember when we did the 1980 nlcs game five that he was he was downstairs and mccarver did the right. ninth with harry because of the the hysterical right. cackling sure. of mccarver um, and so there's no McCarver cause he's playing in the game. Uh, musters on the radio, I guess at this point, if, you know, if they win, it's a walk-off win. So Whitey's got to get down there in a hurry. I got to believe that's where he was. And there was just nobody, you know, wheels was not a broadcaster yet. I think he was still working for Larry Shank. Um, 
there's probably just nobody to do it with Harry, and they thought got to get Whitey on the field just in case. It's, it's hilarious though because it's it gets really weird when there's no play by play man, and the, this is the time of the game you'd really needed that play by play man. I mean, uh, color commentator. Yeah, I mean, even just to hear like, well, Whitey, what's the worst loss you've ever been a part of? You know, or you know that kind of thing. And and he just didn't. There was nobody to have that. So conversation we have with. said that this was the worst loss, but I just want to raise a game that I think can either equal this or is worse, and it's the uh, game five of the DS against the Cardinals in 2011. Just because of the mm-hmm. it, the what happened like you know not only did they lose the game and lose the series but it closed a chapter of Philly's history when Ryan Howard blows out his Achilles on the final pitch it's just you know what a finale you know final ending to to something but maybe is that not a bad loss because they just won the world series three years earlier no I think it's up there I think it's it's up there it's on the list it's another one of these losses where we say what if um what if Halliday had beaten Carpenter that night and they win the series? They were the best team in the National League that year. Do they just roll from there, go on, win another World Series? And, um, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um, and, and, and the Howard thing is really, is really the, the killer on top of all of it because he was never the same player again. And, uh, you know, he goes from being arguably the most dangerous hitter in the league to, you know, to, to having a whole different phase of his career. So, that's up there. I, you know, I don't know. I still think this is one strike away, one out away, one out away with Carlton on the mound in Game Four. One strike away. Yeah. This is still there. This is for me, but it's the it's it's right there with. So if if this is one, I and I think this is one. The Halliday game has to be there with Joe Carter and has to be there with fifteen fourteen and it has to be is, there with this. This with is one. Any Black of the Friday is one. Uh, you can argue. The, the Joe Carter game to me is not in the in the top three because I I've always maintained they did lose the World Series the night they lost that fifteen to fourteen game that would be that would be number two to me and then number three yeah. would be um, number three would be the the Ryan Howard game because that it was it was devastating beyond that it was the end of an era um, and when you talk you know it's so it's not easy to have the sustained success that the Phillies had from seventy really 75 was when they became a legitimate contender to, to through 83 that's eight years and the you know the the oh the oh six team oh five and oh six teams you covered them scott through 2011 not easy to have that sustained success and there there were years for both those teams where they were the best team in baseball um you know i go back to that ops that the big red machine there the Phillies OPS team OPS was 794. The Big Red Machine didn't even come within 20 points of that OPS um, in, in, the, in those two. And, you know, everybody thinks of those as those great offensive teams. But this team was right there with them offensively. Um, so it, it's, it's they were so close to being almost a dynasty uh, in, in both those eras. But we'll never be remembered as that. Do we want to do a yeah, star of the game? Throw it out there first. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go totally off the board and say <laughs> Harry Windelstadt because because the eighth inning was so crazy that nobody remembers how bad Harry Windelstadt was. He tried to make it all about himself. <laughs> he did, and he didn't, and it didn't work. But but in a good way, he's the star of the game. 
because it was entertaining. We got Burt Hooten melting down like nothing I've ever seen, all because of Harry Wendell's dad. And I'm going to go with the 67, however many thousand people were in that ballpark that day because they, they, you know, Harry Callis keeps referring to it throughout the broadcast. That place and the vet was a place, you know, Citizen Bank Park can get loud. Nothing was like Veterans Stadium when that place was rocking. And I'm not sure it rocked more, you know, in a Phillies loss. Maybe it did when they finally won the 80 World Series. Probably did. But in a Phillies loss, that place was probably never louder than it was that that afternoon uh, in South Philly. And maybe never more quiet either. <laughs> like a funeral march out of there. Yeah. I'm going to go with um, – and help me out if I'm saying the name wrong, but Vic Davalio? Davalio. Just the Davalio, the two-out bunt single. It reminded me of the the bunt we saw in the 80 game five. Was it Greg Gross who laid down that bunt, right? Same type of play where it just catches you off guard and – for it to work, it has to do. It has it, to do two things. You have to catch him off guard, and you have to lay. It and down it's a great one too because he already had a strike on him. He didn't try to bunt. You know, yes, he, there was already a strike on him. He swung and missed, and then he laid it down. So you know they were surprised. Yeah, because if you're bunting, you're coming out of the gate bunting. You're not in the middle of a bat with a strike really? on you. That's when you really can fool him. And uh, it just that changed the game. Got him on base, and it changed the course of Philly's history. That is it. And if you can hang on long enough to play until you're 40 and you can have a moment like that. The, the one other thing I remember right not? at the beginning sure, of the broadcast is, as Harry would often do, wishing somebody happy birthday. He, he wished a 97-year-old man a happy birthday. And my immediate thought was, I wonder if this guy lived to 100 to see the Phillies win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> he wished him happy birthday, like, in between. <laughs> or, like, it was so seamless. It didn't even, oh, it wasn't was, a big thing. It was just like, happy he, birthday. He was really good at it. That's great. Good. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Extra Innings, the Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. If you have a chance, you can read Scott Walber's new book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Philadelphia Phillies. It's a great book. It's available everywhere. I know I found on Amazon. And for Bob Brookover and Scott Walber, I'm Matt Breen. Thanks for listening. You can read our work at Inquirer.com or subscribe to our newsletter, Extra Innings. Take care.